This is the Blood Red podcast from the Liverpool Echo, giving you the inside track on all the big talking points from Anfield. It's Analyzing Anfield, your tactics and statistical podcast here on the Blood Red channel. I'm Guy Clark. Alongside me, our tactics guru, Josh Williams, as we bring you a debrief on the season that was 63 games, two cup wins and heartbreak at the last. Josh, we've plenty to get into as ever. Of course, I'm subbing in for Dave Hughes. And well, on the thumbnail, we've got Divock Origi. I normally say it's the Divock Origi role that I reprise for these situations. But as of next year, I'm going to have to come up with a new one, I think, aren't I? Yeah, Liverpool are going to need a new super sub, mate. But um I think you can still make your performances in the in the shadow of Origi, you know, the, the historic performances of Origi, because there's no better super sub really, is there? No, certainly in, in honour of him. Right, today we are going to, as I said, debrief on the season. So much to get into. A mammoth campaign in which the Reds played in every single game they could. A few people on the outside, Josh, saying that last week was anticlimactic, of course, missing out on the Premier League title again by a point, and then the events in Paris on the pitch, seeing the Reds not, not win that Champions League title that many obviously had hoped it would be number seven coming back to Anfield. But I mean, kind of broad stroke. What was your take on on the campaign? I think the campaign was brilliant. Um, I've said before on this podcast, people have asked, people tend to specifically ask it on uh, Q and A's, and um, the, the question is usually, you know, how do we how do we judge success? Almost, how what what should we be happy with the supporters type thing? And when it gets to the absolute crunch time, and you're in finals, and you're competing for league titles. Um, and it's like it, it, there was getting decided by individual matches. You are almost in the the, the hands of the gods, almost. Um, and I think you, you could be the better team. The better team in football doesn't always win. Uh, and sometimes you just open to variance. Randomness can happen. Referees can decide things. Penalties can decide things. So I think the bottom line is, as a club, as a team, what you the, the, the best you can ask for is to be competing. For everything, and that's exactly what Liverpool have done up until the final day of every tournament. Um, League Cup winners, FA Cup winners, competing for the Premier League title up until you know ten minutes before the final whistle on the final day, and then Champions League final, you lose by one goal. So, in my opinion, despite the uh, despite Liverpool maybe deserving one more trophy at least, it's undeniably a, a ridiculously strong season and one of the best really if you're looking at if you try and remove almost the actual cups and whether Liverpool won this and that if you look at getting to the final of every tournament and accumulating over 90 points absolutely ridiculous mate yeah, well, that was what I said at, at the beginning of the season to anyone who would listen, that I, did, I didn't see it happening for, what, a third year in a row that, that two teams could kind of go for, for getting 90-plus points. So I just didn't see it. I thought whichever whichever of, of Man City or Liverpool got to 90, that would be enough to, to win the title, especially coming back in. I think this year, you can look back at, at last summer now and say it, it was difficult to predict exactly what was going to happen, having had that year behind closed doors, exactly how the teams were going to react and how they were going to go. But for both of them, Man City and Liverpool, to go at it the way in which they did was an absolute credit to the two sides that have been built, these absolute Goliaths that now exist in the Premier League. But as you say there, it is a case, isn't it, of of competing, being there to, I suppose in the end, people outside will say 
failure to an extent, but you've got to be there to fail anyway. And Liverpool played in every game possible that they could have at the beginning of this season. When Jurgen Klopp got the fixtures what in, in June of last year and was pulling his hair out already at the amount of games that had to be crammed in here, there and everywhere, despite getting through in all of the domestic cup competitions, I don't think even he probably would have legislated or thought realistically that Liverpool will be in every game, albeit that is definitely the aim, is to win every game as it comes. Yeah, exactly, mate. I've seen a few narratives emerge, um, you know, daft, daft questions, saying things like, "Is Liverpool has Liverpool's season been a failure and, and things like that. And it's just, when it gets to a certain level, as I said, it, it gets to fine details where you, you can control a certain amount, obviously, when it comes to football, when it comes to your season. And the amount that you can control really should put you into a position where you're competing and, and you're earning with the chance of winning this, winning that. Uh, but as I said, it just gets to a point where you are almost just reliant on almost external sources to just help you out almost. Um, Liverpool where, you know, a Rodri hand the ball away from uh, from winning the Premier League, which which could have been given on a different day with a different referee. Um, Liverpool where one extremely solid goalkeeping performance away from winning the Champions League, really. Because in terms of the performance, Liverpool took, I think it was 24 shots against Real Madrid, faced four in defence, um, generated and expected goals of 2.4. Madrid posted 0.9. So Liverpool, in my opinion, did absolutely all that they could have possibly done to bring home a quadruple this season. And to be honest, I'd be surprised if... I think it will be, we'll be waiting a long time before the team gets, gets closer than Liverpool got this season. Yeah, there's a, th- there's a fine line, isn't there, between disappointment and failure. Now, I think you can say the last week in the end ended in, in disappointing fashion for Liverpool, given what we'd seen through the course of the season and building up to that, not to get either the Premier League or the, the, the Champions League. But it wasn't a failure because, as we say, they were in all of those games and even the performance levels, you say, in the Champions League final was kind of above Real Madrid, albeit you mentioned there that the XG and it was something I, I wanted to pick up and talk to you about regarding the Champions League final. Were Liverpool's chances as clear and as strong maybe as what kind of we think? Because like you say there, there was over 20 shots, but that all of a sudden does creep XG up all, all of the time. I know there was the, the, the first half one for Mane, there was the second half one for Salah as well. But Real Madrid, as you say, had far fewer chances, but it did seem that they kind of had a lot clearer presentable opportunities. Obviously, they, they had the goal that was ruled out for offside, and there were a couple of breaks they had where they didn't get chances, shots away, which wouldn't accumulate to their XG. But equally, they were still carrying a threat within the game, if you see what I say. Yeah, no, I think I think based on the, the opportunities Real Madrid generated, the shots that he generated, they probably were realistically going to score at least one goal from those. You know, Vinicius's goal eventually was a, a, a tap-in relatively. Uh, Benzema's goal, which was ruled as offside, I thought was... I was expecting that to get given, I'll be honest, in, in, in the game. Um, so I'm not overly surprised that Real Madrid found a net at least once. I just think on the Liverpool end of things, although you're right when it comes to, you know, the, the volume of the chances that you have boosting up the, the overall XG... I still think generally Liverpool generated enough whereby usually at least one of those would probably just creep in. Um, whether that be Mane's efforts early on 
which was a, a superb save. You know, Kozlowska got down very, very low, very, very quickly, despite being about six foot six. I think he is. Um, and then later in the match, Salah has that that one v one opportunity. Uh, I think Kozlowska said after the game that he doesn't know how he saved that. I think he said. Um, so the, although Liverpool didn't generate many clear cut opportunities, as you say, and I, I don't think this is a case at all of Liverpool should have steamrolled the team and won the game three 0 or anything like that. It's just a case of on a normal day, one of those for Liverpool just usually would creep in, uh, and that just didn't happen. If you play that, if you replay that match a hundred times, which is you know a general little principle that we tend to use with XG, if you replay that match a hundred times, Liverpool generate the same shots, but do the finishing part again. They probably score at least once, or or Courtois probably makes one fewer amazing save. You know what I mean? It's just a uh, one of those little things that you've just got to move on from and just accept that it wasn't your day, really. Do you think it kind of feeds into that mentality area? I mean, Jurgen Klopp. It was it was a thing that was mentioned in the pre-match press conference on Wednesday that just made me think at the time built into the confidence I had that Liverpool were going to win the game of Liverpool had been on this great run, certainly away from home of winning every, every place they'd been to in Europe. It really had been a case of conquering all of Europe, looking to win that champions league. But then you get to the final, you play a team like Real Madrid. And I suppose it's one of those things we can't always legislate for in the numbers, that mentality switch that Real have to throw the course of their campaign they looked dead and buried on a number of occasions, but they never were beaten. They always came back. And you kind of felt within that game, as you say, the XG kind of points to it, that Real were always going to have a say somewhere along the line. And the longer it kind of... It, it certainly felt first half, Liverpool were really on top. And up until the, the offside goal, it was kind of a... They need, to, they, need to, they need to make this pay. They need to make it pay at some stage. And in the end, they, they, they couldn't quite do it. Yeah, well, there's just something about Madrid, especially this season, but especially in finals as well. They just um, seem to have a way of navigating them. And they've got those players who, and Liverpool have got them now as well, but Madrid especially have got these players who have just kind of been there and done it. And I don't know about you, I felt during the course of the game, the tempo just felt so slow. And it felt like a Spanish game as opposed to a Premier League game, which possibly favours Real Madrid in terms of what they're accustomed to. And uh, I must say, I do remember when we recorded the show after Liverpool beat Spurs in the Champions League final a few years ago. And that day, the narrative was similar, but on Spurs' end. People were saying Spurs deserved to win, Spurs were a better team, and all that sort of stuff. And my, my reasoning then at the time was, although that might be true, in a one-off final, it's almost the case of your performance doesn't matter that much because you are purely there to win the game however you do that um you can be as pragmatic as you want whatever you do you just have to win it's just a game that you just got to win by any means necessary and madrid find a way of doing that every time and uh as you say they knocked out manchester city they knocked out chelsea they knocked out psg so i still personally just based on what i use to judge a football team don't think they're the best team in europe absolutely no chance but they they have that special element as a team and as a club where they can just get through individual knockout games. Like I see, I've seen one or two people, and I agree with them, I've seen one or two people say, um, if you put Madrid in the Premier League, there's no way they finish in the top two. And if you put Liverpool and City in, in, in La Liga, Liverpool and City finish 
top two. Um, so I don't think they're the best team in Europe, but I do think there's, as I said, there's special elements about what they're doing. You know, you have to admire that. Yeah, I suppose it's the beauty of knockout football, isn't it? I mean, I, I say the beauty of when it's not gone Liverpool's way, but it is the the, the case of, of winning the games that, that count, as it were, and Real Madrid do seem to be absolute experts in that. You mentioned there's been a few narratives since the season's finished that have been floating around. And one of them, Josh, is one that I'm quite frankly tired of, is the fact that Liverpool didn't score in any of the three finals they were in. Two of them, obviously, they won on penalties, but part of the competition rules that the game goes to penalties if neither side scores. But what's your take on it? Well, I had a look at this, actually. Uh, over the three finals, Liverpool posted about 61 shots, I think it was, uh, which is about 20 per game. I know two of them went to extra time, but it's still in the region of 20 per game. Um, in the Premier League this season, for a bit of perspective, Liverpool averaged 19 per game. So, in that sense, there's nothing overly wrong with Liverpool's attack in these finals, at least. In terms of the shots that Liverpool generated, those 61 shots were worth about 6.1 xG, I think it was when I checked. Um, so you'd expect to score about six goals from them 61 shots. Liverpool obviously scored zero. Um, now, I watched each final. I don't think the finishing was especially bad. I think there were some top saves in there. I think Liverpool were a bit unlucky at times. And this is kind of comes back to what I said at the start of the show. You're almost in the hands of the gods, really, when it comes to certain situations. And um, Liverpool generated more than enough to score, so there's nothing wrong with the attack. Goalkeeping performances were top. And uh, as I said, if you, if, you, if you play those finals 100 times each again, it's much more likely that Liverpool end up with closer to six goals than zero. So... It's it's very much just one of them. Sometimes football is like that, and that's why I, sometimes I question what I'm doing because uh, it's it's why are we analysing this game? That's just so capricious, so so fickle in the way it changes, and uh, it's just so unpredictable. And that's why we love it, but uh, it can be it can be harsh as well at times. Just thankfully, Liverpool got through two of those finals, winning penalty shootouts. The Blood Red Podcast from the Liverpool Echo. Yeah, the, the random nature of it. Yeah, I, I, I have to say, I struggle to think back clearly to the Carabao Cup final. I do seem to remember Quiven Kelleher with a brilliant save. I think it was tonight to deny Mason Mount. But I don't think Luis Diaz and co could have done much more in the FA Cup final to score. And Diogo Jota had one that rolled just wide of the post as well. So, like you say, I suppose the narrative that goes around Liverpool didn't score in three finals is very misleading. But equally, at the same time, it is that element of making sure they get over the line. And we've seen so many times, haven't we, with Jurgen Klopp sides that they might fail at one hurdle, but they come back the following year to to rectify that. Now, whether next year they, they, they end up pulling off a quadruple, I highly doubt it. But equally, you, you do get the feeling, I'm sure, with the narratives that are being kind of woven off the back of losing the Champions League final and this, this fact there wasn't goals in the final for all three finals that Liverpool were in, that next time they're there, that will be lodged in the back of the mind and certainly something they want to put right. Yeah, yeah, I mean, possibly. I've seen Klopp speak after the final and he said something along the lines of when he last lost the Champions League final with, with the, against Real Madrid in, in Kiev, he felt a lot more low than he did this time around. And the reason behind that was because he, he feels like this team is going to come again. And in Kiev, he had faith that that was going to happen, but he wasn't especially sure. 
Um, and I feel I feel similar. You know, it's it's I, I can take losses now in these big games more than I used to be able to a few years back. And the reason I can do that is because Liverpool feel like they're going to be competing in these on a pretty regular basis now. Um, you know, lots of depth in the squad. Going to add to the squad again this summer. And um, Everton's, Everton's staying in place in terms of, you know, consistency behind the scenes and the coach and, and the spine of the team and all that sort of stuff. So I think Liverpool are going to come again. And you don't really need too much to go differently in the, in future finals for to, to win games. I think Liverpool have, have done enough in each final to win to win the game. Um, it just hasn't happened in one of them, you know, which is not too bad. Um, but I think in future in future finals, as I said, Liverpool can just play exactly the same way, exactly the same way as they have done this season. And and they should win the games. I think Liverpool took 36 shots more than their opponents over the course of those three finals against Chelsea twice and Madrid once. That's the better team, really. Um, but it just doesn't always work out like that. Yeah, no, definitely. I'm going to use that as a nice segue, though, of what you said there from, from Jurgen Klopp, of him him saying that he has confidence that Liverpool will be back at this stage again and, and that it does feel different to the defeat out in Kiev. And the reason I want to pick up on that and go with that is because, again, a lot of people have been saying, now you look at the age profile of the squad, you point at Thiago, Henderson, Salah, Mane, Firmino, Andy Robertson, and say, actually, James Milner, is this an ageing side? Is it now Jurgen Klopp having to, to rebuild his second great Liverpool side? But on the flip to that, you've got the likes of Canate, Jones, Elliot, Jota, Diaz. I mean, it seems to have been so well-constructed, this Liverpool side, that at no point, really, is a sledgehammer going to be taken to it. The piece is all absolutely smashed out of the way, and a new side built, it feels as though, and this summer may well underline that, that actually, Liverpool are already a couple of transfer windows down the line to refreshing and evolving the squad anyway. Yeah, that's it. Liverpool have, have now had Jürgen Klopp in charge for a few seasons now. Michael Edwards has been, you know, overseeing the squad for a few seasons now. Obviously, he's leaving this summer. But I think Liverpool now have, have reached a point whereby the squad is, is kind of perfectly managed. And you've got that really nice balance that you want between um, seasoned performers and really high potential kids who, who have world class potential but aren't maybe there yet. Um if, if I think of Premier League history, Salax Ferguson was a master doing that really. You know, he was able to bring through high potential kids and he were able to play alongside really established pillars like, you know, Rio Ferdinand and Roy Keane and um people who they could trust, people who they could rely on to get the most stick. And Liverpool have that now as well. You know, Ibrahim Kanate, as you mentioned, 22 years old. Since Alexander-Arnold, 22 years old. Um, and then you've got the likes of Harvey Elliott, who's 18. Um, so you've got lots of high potential. I mean, Alexander-Arnold's not exactly a kid, is he? You know, he's been around the, the team for years now. So it's just a master a masterclass on squad building, really. And again, this summer, Liverpool will want to probably bring down the average age ever so slightly. And... If you keep doing that gradually, window by window, you never really get to a point where you're too old. Um, but Liverpool, as I said, just offered a clinic on how to build, build a squad. I suppose there is a risk, though, this summer, isn't there, that Michael Edwards is moving on. And Julian Ward, albeit has been in the building, now all of a sudden will be one of the, the key decision makers and power brokers when it comes to kind of retention and recruitment. Yeah, but I think the, the infrastructure around him 
that was that has been around Edwards will remain in place. Ward has shadowed Edwards for a number of years now. When I went to the Statsbomb conference uh, at the back end of last year with Dave, uh, Julian Ward was there with Michael Edwards. They were together. They were like a little, you know, a little gang basically. Um, Ian Graham was there, and you know, they were like a little team. So it it it, it will remain as is. I think, despite the the change in personnel, I think that's FSG's general goal in in, in general, really. Um, you know, anytime somebody leaves, ideally there will be a man right behind them, ready to step into his shoes to ensure that change isn't felt too drastically. Like I, I, I'm now personally of the belief that when Klopp leaves, I wouldn't be that surprised if Linders came in and just took and stepped into his shoes. I think if Ian Graham was to leave, I think one of his fellow nerds would would probably step into his shoes as well. Uh, Edwards is left, and and Ward is going to step into his shoes. And I think that's generally what you want. If you look at Manchester United and their downfall in the past decade, it really stemmed from David Gill and and Sir Alex Ferguson both stepping down in the same season, and just pulled the kind rug, of, didn't it? Yeah, yeah. It just it just left them in no man's land almost, and they had to they had to rebuild the entire structure of the club on on the fly. Uh, but Liverpool have got the infrastructure behind the scenes now, whereby they shouldn't really. Be major, major waves felt after after high profile departures. Yeah, it was like playing Jenga and pulling out the bottom two blocks at the same time. Yeah, yeah. Manchester United, but in in terms of Liverpool, then and as you were saying, there got me thinking. Quite fascinating that I suppose actually in many ways, the on pitch squad building that you say they put a clinic on in is married and mirrored off the pitch as well. And for me, one of Jurgen Klopp's greatest skills is his ability to delegate and effectively know his role, know that he's the guy who says the final word to the team before they go out to motivate them to have the sign-off on what the rest of the, the departments that he oversees are busy working away on rather than trying to be the man who does it all. And actually, as you say there, whilst Michael Edwards might move on, perhaps sometimes from the outside we hear these names and we attribute all the transfer success to Michael Edwards for Coutinho, for bringing in the likes of Van Dijk and Diogo Jota and the master strokes that have been. And obviously these individuals have played a key role within that, but the strength of it has come from the system rather than perhaps the individual. Yeah, and not just the system, but also the the specific way of thinking almost, the, the willingness to challenge conventional wisdom, the willingness to, to think outside the box. And that that's kind of what you get by by appointing people like Edwards. Like Edwards was uh, initially head of analysis at Liverpool, and he's got a background in pro zone and things like that. So he's always been a, an analytical mind, if you like. Whereas most people at the top of football clubs, you know, historically it's been the managers who have been overseeing the control over the squad and and new contracts and new signs and players getting sold. A lot of managers. There'll be top coaches, they'll know tactics and, and man management and things like that. But did they have a clue about how to construct the squad? Did they have a clue about um, contract lengths, negotiations and all that sort of stuff? Have they even had, had enough time to to dele- delegate to that sort of thing alongside what they're doing in, in the normal job? Two two managers come to mind in David Moyes and Sir Alex Ferguson, maybe who who have been top recruiters as well as managers. But a lot of coaches, a lot of managers now are just um, 
not particularly experts when it comes to building the squads. Brendan Rodgers always comes to mind as one of those. Um, I thought it was interesting a few weeks back I saw that Yannick Vestergaard and um, Sumari are both up for sale a year after leave, a year after joining the club. Um, and it's, it seems to have coincided a little bit with Rodgers being there a few years back before Rodgers came in. Leicester's recruitment was regarded as one of the best in the league. Um, so it's just interesting how these things work. But as I said, overall, I think Liverpool will be fine in the long run. Let's talk more then in depth about the squad building and, and changes that might be afoot. Certainly at the moment, the, the name on everyone, everyone's lips is, is Sadio Mane and what his future will offer. I mean, he, he said prior to the final that he would give an answer after the game in Madrid. That answer seemingly is, is still waiting. And as it hangs in the air, there's kind of an air of inevitability that actually he, he will be looking for to move on to pastures new. And I suppose Michael Edwards moving on in the background and Sadio Mane on the pitch would be a huge change for Liverpool to deal with, but equally not something they haven't probably already set themselves and prepared themselves for. Yeah, well, I think it, it would be a change to deal with naturally, but I think Liverpool will deal with this by just putting keeping things exactly the same and filling those slots seamlessly. So, as I said, Ward is, I hope, I mean, it's, it's hard to know much about him, but Ward, I think, will be a clone of Edwards, essentially. He'll just go right in there. And I think Liverpool next season will, will hopefully find a clone for Sadio Mane. I think they already have in, in Luis Diaz, personally. I think Luis Diaz is as close to Sadio Mane clone as you're probably going to get in many ways. Um, And he obviously plays on the left of Liverpool's attack, so... Next season, if you were to play with an attack of, of Diaz, Jota, Salah, for the most part, from three, very, very little changes compared to what we've seen for Liverpool in the past couple of years. I know Liverpool have reported to also want an, an actual, a, another replacement for Mane in terms of another attacker. Be interesting to see how that works. But um, as I said, FSG in particular have just managed to establish this culture at Liverpool where they're not reliant on, on any individual. And that's... Um, that's really nice to see, considering the Liverpool before, uh, where you know Coutinho, not Coutinho, sorry, Sterling would leave, Liverpool would collapse. Suarez would leave, Liverpool would collapse. Torres would leave, Liverpool would collapse. So uh, it's nice to see Liverpool have these contingency plans in place. And I think, although Mane is a big loss, um, I think Liverpool will be fine again. <laughs> Do you think it's the right call? Because I mean, you mentioned. Sir Alex Ferguson there and how he's rebuilt sides and one of the, the greatest skills he has was the forethought to see when a player was perhaps over the hill. Now, I'm not going to lie, I thought last year when Junior Van Alden walked out that that probably wasn't the wisest of moves and surely something could have been done to give him a New Year's contract. But from, from what's gone on at PSG for him and the way his careers that then played out, actually in hindsight, the, the correct, complete correct decision was made, whether that was solely down to Jurgen Klopp, whether, again, that's part of the framework that Liverpool work within. Do you feel there's something similar on with Sadio Mane? Or do you think it probably comes down to an economical thing of saying, right, he, he, he'll be demanding a top, top, top level salary, which we're not going to pay for a player who's over 30. Let's go and find the next person coming up and make the next superstar, who, again, we can get the same returns from. Yeah, I, I don't think Liverpool were, were ever really going to give Sadio Mane a new contract at most. I think in an ideal world, though, they probably would have let him run his deal down like Wijnaldum did before leaving on a free. Because if Liverpool are going to cash in for Mane this summer, 
whatever they make in terms of a transfer fee is probably worth his contributions next season on the pitch probably would have been worth more in terms of potentially helping Liverpool to deliver a Premier League or a Champions League title. So I think in an ideal world Liverpool would keep him for another year and then just let him go for free, which they seem to be doing with Firmino. Um but to lose him a year early for a fee. Again I don't think it's I don't think it's that bad. It's it, it's not the worst fee for a thirty year old player, I think he is with one year left on his deal, his, his, his prime is comfortably behind him, despite decent form. I think we've definitely experienced Mane's prime. And I'll be honest, you know, I, I, a few months back, it wasn't that long ago that I, I personally thought to myself, this player is declining. This this player is, is not as good as he once was. And then he explodes on the back of Diaz arriving and Mane getting deployed through the middle. So, and Salah's the same. It's, it's totally flipped when it comes to Salah. You know, up until January, Salah was Liverpool's top performer, running away with the golden boot. Second half of the season, he is a totally different player. Uh, well, at least when it comes to his, his end product. I think if you look at his numbers across the board, they're generally identical in terms of what he was doing, in terms of chance creation, getting the ball into the penalty box and all that sort of stuff. But it's actually his actual end product, putting the ball in the net, if you like, was down. The Blood Red Podcast from the Liverpool Echo. But I do do think... you not see? I mean, for, for for me, I look at it. I I completely agree with what you say. I think his, Mane's prime to now has certainly been at Liverpool. But equally, I do look at him in the way the last six months have gone of him playing as a centre forward. And I, I'm in agreement. I thought on the left hand side he was beginning to decline. But how he's played as a centre forward, to me, I I sort of see similarities to a player like Jamie Vardy, for example, who actually with Mane, if he can play in bursts and on the shoulder and just conserve energy and much like how Cristiano Ronaldo moved himself into being a centre forward from a wide attacking forward to then just play in moments within games and really, I suppose, refine exactly the parts of games and matches that he does have his involvement and get goals. Now, maybe that's away from Liverpool's pressing style. I'm not sure, but I see Mane far more adaptable to doing that and becoming that player than Mohamed Salah, for example, because when he's gone through the middle, He's never quite convinced, and yet out wide, he flourishes off having that space and that time on the ball, which just as he ages, you wonder if he'll be quite as dynamic as he is now. Well, I think if Mane's leaving this summer, I think Liverpool will probably be in the market for a central presence more than anything else, because Diaz is comfortable on the left, Salah's comfortable on the right. I know Jota can play through the middle, he's done so fairly comfortably, but... You know, he's, his, his link-up at times isn't the, the absolute best, is it? It's not like uh, Mane's ability to hold the ball. It's not like Firmino's ability to hold the ball. So it's going to be interesting to see how Liverpool navigate that one. Um, but the only issue is what you've just been saying there. I don't think it's in Liverpool's nature to let a player conserve energy and to play in moments. That's just not how Klopp does things specifically. That's not Liverpool's identity. And I think if you keep players beyond their peak level of performance to an extent where they start to be able to do that at your club, especially if there's three of them, you you just will gradually decline as a force. Yeah. Um, and you have to, it's, it can be difficult at times, but you have to remove sentiment from the, the process. And that's why 
it makes so much sense for Liverpool's model to, to work the way it does rather than Klopp making these decisions, which would have been traditionally the case because Klopp has naturally sentiment attached to these players. He, you know, Wijnaldum, Lallana, he, he owes so much to these players, Mane as well, Firmino, that he would probably want to keep them, but the decision is taken out of his hands because it's it's it, Klopp's influenced by bias in, in this situation. Yeah. And it's it, although it's it is difficult to to go through with, you have to accept that these players are over the hill almost. And um you have to cut ties before Liverpool suffered that decline. Uh so it's it is difficult. It's it's not a nice thing to go through, but ultimately long term it does make sense and it ensures that Liverpool um refrain refrain from dropping off at any point. Liverpool don't suffer any decline and you just keep performance to a certain level as normal. Yeah, completely, completely see what you're saying and and, and agree with you there. And so I suppose next question is in terms of the attack, is are Liverpool, do you think, going to go down the route where there is such a traditional front three? There are three nailed on forwards within the squad, like there have been through the first half of Jurgen Klopp's reign. Or do you think now with, with Jota, Diaz, Salah, whilst that's easy to say that is a front three and that would be a very functional front three, that moving forward actually, and with Divock Origi leaving, that a centre-forward might come into the mix, an out-and-out kind of centre-forward, which would then mean that Jota is very much a utility-type player. As 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 too, I think Diaz has proven himself equally adept on the right as he has on the left at times. And that there will be kind of selection decisions needed to be made. And and, and on Origi, I suppose it's kind of the opposite there of what you're saying about the, the bias and the connection with the player. That actually, if there was a 27-year-old forward of the calibre of Divock Origi available on a free transfer this summer, surely Liverpool would very much be sniffing around and looking and think he would be a very sensible option to have within the squad. But given the services given to Liverpool, Jurgen Klopp quite happy to not stand in his way and say, yeah, you go and find yourself regular playing time. Yeah, well, I must admit, I, I am very intrigued to see what Liverpool do this summer because this this more than... I mean, it feels like a really difficult summer, actually, for Ward to navigate, considering this is first on his own, at least, or supposedly is. Um, it's a difficult one for him to navigate because it's a proper crossroads summer, I think. Um, previous seasons, there's been a lot of talk of, you know, are Liverpool going to sign a proper striker finally? Are Liverpool going to change formation to 4 2 3 one that, that's generally been a running narrative, but it's just neither of them have ever happened. Liverpool have always kept 4-3-3 and they've always retained the purchase of forwards as opposed to strikers, if you know what I mean. Yeah. Um, I still think that will happen, personally. I would be surprised if Liverpool move away from 4-3-3. I'd be very surprised, actually. I'd be surprised if Liverpool signed a traditional striker as well. It's possible now more than ever because of this crossroads moment where you can potentially change tact a little bit, where you can go in a different direction. It feels like the moment to do that if you're going to. But I still think it makes sense for Liverpool to um, stick with what they've been doing, essentially, because it's so effective. Liverpool have really nailed the type of profile that they like to sign. You can be so fluid in attacking areas if you haven't got that traditional marksman who's occupying the box all the time. Um, but it just depends who Liverpool deem to be the, the best 
available player they can get in in attacking areas. Like I've seen some really strange links to Harry Kane and um, Son Young Min. You know, pl- players like this. So it's, it seems to be a case of Liverpool are really open minded when it comes to this one. I think it could be a case of similar to Thiago. Liverpool don't really put an age criteria on this on this move, and they just kind of get. I mean, within reason, obviously, but you just kind of get a top attacker to fill a void. You know, whether he be 29, 22, 31. I mean, maybe 31 is pushing it, but I think it's it's going to be really interesting to see how Liverpool do this one. And the way we can usually follow a certain theme, it's going to be 4-3-3. It's going to be a forward. It's going to be someone who's under 26. This one feels like it's those... Um, Liverpool are less within those confines this time around. Liverpool are gonna. Liverpool are free to to do what they want almost. So you re- but you reckon thirty three is out of the out of the equation. I have a feeling you're asking me that for a specific reason. <laughs> yes, yeah, a, a certain man at Bayern Munich. Yeah. Yeah. Um, um, I have thought about that one actually. I, it's it's an interesting link, but I I don't know. I really don't know. I, I don't know has said in the past that, that Lewandowski has been the best player that he's he's managed. I mean, he will turn 34 in August. I, I personally can't see it, but I know a lot of people are getting excited about the potential of it happening. But equally, I suppose that could be a way that they go is, is buy in a real short... I know it doesn't really feed into what Liverpool do, but make sure they get even a short-term option until the specific long-term option that they want to invest in is because I can see a scenario where Sadio Mane gets sold, that money is invested into Mohamed Salah's new contract and a new forward brought in is a complete separate purchase and investment into the future of the Liverpool forward line. Now, whether that needs to be done in two parts of Lewandowski's the short-term option for that that can do a season, two seasons until the likes of maybe they, they see how Amy gets on at Dortmund or there's another player who comes through the ranks somewhere else around Europe that they have their eye on and go, yeah, you know what? We'll wait for this player to be ready in the meantime. Let's have a short-term option. Yeah, I can, I can see what you're saying. And there's definitely an, enough there where people could make a case for it. You know, it, it, it feels like almost galaxy brain stuff to start saying, no, don't sign him. Because he's he's too old. Because at the end of the day, he, he is an elite striker. He's an elite player at a elite club. Done it for years now. Worked on the club in the past. Consistent availability. You know, this season just gone. He's just played thirty four Bundesliga matches in terms of starts uh, out of thirty eight. I think um, thirty five goals. I've seen the shape he's in in terms of what he looked like was a top off essentially, and he's he's absolutely ripped. So. I can see he looks after himself. Um, but I, I think he might be a bit too old and modest. Yeah, I agree. But at the same time, as I said, this does feel like a window where Liverpool are less within the confines of their traditional approach. And I think Liverpool are more open-minded than ever uh, for this for this window. And I think what, what, they might, what they seem to want to do is pretty much poach the, the best player for... It, from from a team in, in their neighbourhood almost. Like the the links to Son and Kane I think are really interesting. Um when I was at Statsbomb and Ian Graham gave us talk, he showed a a bar chart thing, a bar chart graph. 
and uh, it was each it was the goal difference spread of each club in the Premier League, the goal difference spread of each team, and he used an example to to capture what what he meant. So he said, say for example, Manchester City, you've got the spread, and you you had like a a, a jump at the top of the bar, if you know what I mean. This is hard to explain, but that that was that what that meant was City have one outlier when it comes to adding goal difference to their team. And that one outlier I assume is Kevin De Bruyne or Sergio Aguero or, or whoever it would have been at the time. He then said Spurs have two outliers. You know, th- immediately I think Son and Kane without question. And I think the fact that Liverpool have been linked with Son and Kane I think is interesting. Liverpool supposedly tested the water with Haaland, supposedly tested the water with Mbappe. Again, they're going to be the outliers for their team. So I think Liverpool might navigate this by just picking up the outlier of one of Europe's top teams almost uh, to, to fill this void. Robert Lewandowski, I'm assuming, would be the outlier for, for Bayern Munich in terms of adding goal difference to the team. But he's 33, so I don't know. It's going to be interesting to see how Liverpool do this. It's going to be very interesting indeed. And actually, Josh, I'm going to wrap things up there because that has whetted the appetite, something incredible for the summer to come. Analyzing Anfield, of course, won't be going anywhere despite the uh, lack of action to come over the uh, end of the close season. We'll be back with plenty more episodes. Dave will be back, of course, as well. We'll have a look at transfer picks that Liverpool can make. We've already spoken a lot about the attackers, but there's midfield that perhaps needs some work during the closed season as well, and plenty more to get into besides. But from myself, Guy Clark and Josh Williams, thanks for your time and your company here on this edition of Analyzing Anfield. It's bye for now. You've been listening to the Blood Red Podcast from the Liverpool Echo.